0: welcome back to the bloody bizarre podcast my name's emma i'm sarah and my voice is normal again this week hopefully yes we've taken another week in between records yeah uh welcome back yes sorry about that last episode i mean i edited it so i listened back to it and it's a bit of a dumpster fire (laughs) what in terms of your voice my voice and also like it's just do you remember what the last one was? Stairs in the Woods. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. It was it was very short. Um but like I was sick and so I mean, lucky I even recorded anything, really. That's um pretty aggressive to our listeners. <laughs> Are talking to you. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, then that's not as aggressive as you usually are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been a bit of a week. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're back. Are you going to share oh. anything? <laughs> um, I cut my head open. I fainted and hit my head on the floor. You're the head. worst at delivering <laughs> stories. <laughs> it's been a week. Anyway. Um, Why has it been a week? Oh, I cut my head open. Anyway. <laughs> I said I fainted. Hit my head on the floor, and it burst, up, bust open. And I got some staples, and now it's, I've got staples in my head. Is there anything else you want me to tell them? No, it just you should work on this. I don't know how to. <laughs> I'm <laughs> thirty. I'm not going to learn how to tell stories now. I listen to podcasts like almost all day, and I still haven't figured out how to. You still don't know <laughs> how to tell a story. Um, do you want me to just jump in because this one's going to be really long? Um, Do you have any shout-outs to do first? Oh, yeah. I wanted to give a shout-out to our old friends, uh, Shannon and Lachlan, Mm. who are in New Zealand having an amazing time. Mm -hmm. Honestly, their holiday looks so fun. It's just like fun activity after fun activity. Yeah. Like I was watching um, Shan's story today and it was like geothermal bath thing and then they went on the the rolly. Zorbs. Zorbs. And then it was, like, um, to one of those, like, horror cabaret shows yeah. in the nighttime. I was like, oh, my god! <laughs> yeah, they, they took a photo in our shirts. Yes, yeah. Um, and Shan sent me a video of them um, listening to the uh, Lenny Fraser episode <laughs> um, in the middle of, like, the New Zealand countryside. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to listen to it anyway. Yeah, guess. That, that's what she said. Yeah. Okay, so shout out to those two people whoever they are <laughs> <laughs> definitely not close personal friends <laughs> just random fans of the podcast <laughs> so um today i'm going to tell you about joanne matouk remain never heard of her yeah okay so my sources are movieweb.com article by fatima ali idrisoglu uh a youtube channel by georgia marie the video titled suicide or cover-up and unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com oh is this an unsolved mysteries it case it sure is oh. and it was featured on an episode of unsolved mysteries well yeah that's what i meant oh okay it's not just <laughs> a an unsolved yeah, mystery yeah no yeah it's, i meant it like was the on the show yes yes so today i'm going to talk through a case that police believe to be a suicide Or they're saying it's a suicide. And on the surface, that may seem fair. But this case was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, as I said. Um, And to this day, for reasons which we'll talk through, many don't buy into what the police are saying. Okay, yeah. Today we're talking about the mysterious death of Joanne Matouk Romaine. This case has a lot of details that you need to pay attention to, which is why I didn't want to do it last week. When I was sick and disgusting. And it's topsy-turvy and there's like you know, details that um, overlap and interact and are contradictory. Mm. And so you have to listen and pay attention. Okay. So that goes for you Listeners. listening as well. Yes. Trigger warning. There is brief discussions of suicide. Born Joanne Matouk in May of 1954 in Gross Point Woods, Wayne County, Michigan. Oh, I've read that funny. I guess I don't know how to read either. <laughs> 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 um, so she was born Joanne Matouk in 1954 in Gross Point Woods, Wayne County, Michigan. Yeah, Gross Point Woods sits on the banks of Lake St. Clair and has a relatively small population. We're talking sub twenty thousand. It's an affluent area where everyone knows everyone. Lake St. Clair covers a massive area, but it's not all that deep. In fact, so deep is it not that an artificial trench has to be maintained in the middle of it to allow trade to pass through. To allow what trade to pass through. Like boats? Yeah. Ah, okay. Um, around the banks, it sits at about two feet deep. Wow, okay. Yeah, so not deep at all. Why do they still send boats? Oh, d- don't worry, that's not Because it's like St. Clair, which is in between, like, Canada and Michigan. and like, it's, So it's an important It's route. an important – but I guess they could send them through, um, like, Michigan, but I don't know. Or anyway. Like trucks. Um, huh? Trucks. Well, Australia runs on trucks. I don't know if... Uh, Without trucks, Australia stops. stops. exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, a person would need to walk the length of about two football fields to be even at four feet deep. Oh, wow. Yeah. So keep that in mind. In 1980, Joanne married David Romaine and they were, went on to have three children, Michelle, Kelly and Michael. The pair's oldest daughter, Michelle, says her parents didn't get along, but I read elsewhere that the couple seemed to have a relatively good marriage for the most part. But I think, like, the daughter would know. Yeah. She lives in the house with them. Mm. But maybe it's just, like, they bicker a lot or... Yes, maybe they were just one of those couples where... On the outside, everyone sees them and they're, like, all, all happy, but then inside the house. maybe. I was going to say, maybe they're one of those couples where like they've been together forever, but it's always a little bit awkward when you're around them because they're constantly like having a go at each other, but then they like give each other a kiss and you're like, are you guys fighting? Are yeah. You... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. But after, tw- after 25 years of marriage, David, the root rat ran off with Joanne's best friend. <gasps> he didn't. He did. Obviously causing the end of his marriage. Oh, poor Joanne. Yeah. That is fucked. Yeah. Joanne moved in with her daughters, Michelle and Kelly. Cute. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I like to think that Abby and this next one will take me in if Greg ever (laughs) hooks up with Donna or something. Um, Michelle, her daughter, obviously, says Joanne was full of life, was the best mum and had the warmest heart. She says they were a close-knit family. Kelly says Joanne was a, a quote "great lady and everyone's best friend." She was happy and fun to be around. Their house was, quote, "their house to be at." When they were growing up, their friends were always over, and it made Joanne happy to see them with their friends. Joanne was described by many as like a second mum. Oh She was very maternal and very loving. And you can just imagine the type of Yeah, the type of house it would be. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the house you go to if everyone's, like, a little bit drunk. Yeah, yeah, And then mum, like, comes in in the morning and, and, like, gives everyone coffee or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Joanne had a part-time job at a boutique in town and was a devout Catholic, attending her church every Sunday without fail. She would sometimes be at church as much as three times in any one week. Fuck that. January 12th, 2010. Joanne attended one of these regular church sessions, specifically the 7pm prayer service. This service goes for 15 to 20 minutes and a witness confirmed that she was there. On the way to this service, Joanne stopped to fill up the car with petrol and the attendees of the service reported nothing unusual during. At 7.20pm, a witness reported seeing Joanne leave the church and then a minute later, another witness reported hearing a car alarm going off and the lights flashing on the car for about 15 seconds. As this was not accompanied by anything further, they didn't think much of it. Her daughters had been out for dinner that night, returning home at 9pm. They were a little surprised to find that their mum wasn't home yet, but they just figured she'd gone out for coffee with someone after the service. However, they did try and call her, finding that her phone was off, but not too concerned at this point, because they figured maybe she'd turned it off for the service and had just forgotten to turn it back on. According to police reports, later that evening, just before 9pm, Lieutenant Andrew Rogers was on a routine patrol when he noticed her silver Lexus SUV on a one-way exit driveway adjacent to the church. It was approximately 100 feet or 30 meters from Lake St. Clair. So it was still at the church? mm mm-hmm. yeah. At 9pm, remember, they heard the car alarm and everything at 7.20 when yeah. the, when the service ended. Yeah. Now... He ran the car's license plate through the Law Enforcement Information Network, or the LEIN system, and learned it was registered to Michelle, her daughter. Yep. Right? So, she's using her daughter's car. He also learned its license plate expired several days earlier. But oh, so, like, is that the the same as, like, they had to take the rego? Yep. Yep. Because it was on private property, he didn't believe there was a reason to investigate it further or issue a ticket. He just continued on. About an hour later... Also, just before 10pm, public safety officer Keith Colombo <laughs> was also on a routine patrol when he came upon Joanne's car. He noticed that it was the only car in the driveway. According to Chief Daniel Jensen, Director of Public Safety for Gross Point Farms, which is, that's the suburb name, Gross Point Farms, uh, the church appeared dark and there was no apparent reason for the car to be there. Officer Colombo became concerned when there was no one around and it was late on a cold January weeknight. Initially, I thought it was really weird that both the officers even noticed a car, let alone, like, took any action for a car just parked in a driveway. Mm. But then again, it is a small town. Maybe this is normal practice. Maybe it's not. We'll go on to talk about it. I guess if you're out patrolling and it's your job to be like keeping an eye on things, maybe you're just a little bit more switch on about. Okay, like mm, that's weird. I'll keep an. I'll just like keep an Make eye on judgment. that. All right, yeah. all right. Well, okay. Um, so inside the car, because Officer Colombo decides to investigate. <laughs> I'm sorry. Whenever you call him Colombo, I'm like, I feel like you're making fun of him. But <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I kind of am. But anyway, <laughs> um, Officer Colombo finds Joanne's purse on the front passenger seat her wallet and fifteen hundred dollars in cash were also in the car he returned to his patrol vehicle and ran the car's license plate he then decided to search the area not seeing anyone he thought the car's driver might be down by the water's edge because people often parked near the church to walk down to the lake fifteen hundred dollars is a lot to have on hand especially then Mm mm-hmm At the lake, Colombo noticed and then followed footprints in the snow that went from the nearby curb, which was about 75 feet or 22 meters from the car, to an embankment near the river. Near the water. It's not a river. It's a lake. Near the lake. (laughs) Yeah. Officer Colombo noticed that the footprints went down to the embankment to two break walls. There were two prints that indicated that someone had sat down in the snow on the first break wall near the water Um, because the handprints were found like backwards, so the person had sat down. It appeared that the person had slid down to the second break wall near the water's edge, where another butt print and handprints were found. He could find no prints that indicated that the person had come back up from the water's edge, and so based on what was found, he believed there was a person in the water. This is all his story, Mm. and there are no photos of the hand butt prints or anything like that. Mm. So... Over the radio, he reported his discovery of Joanne's car and requested assistance from his supervisor, Lieutenant Rogers. From earlier, Lieutenant Rogers contacted the U.S. Coast Guard, and a search and rescue operation began soon after that call was made. At around 9:20 p.m., Michelle was putting on night clothes, uh, pajamas, when she noticed uh, a car's headlights coming around the corner of her street. She thought it must be her mum returning. Wondering why it had taken her so long, but still relieved that her mum was home. That was until she noticed it was actually a police car. that moment. Your stomach would just drop. Yes, it would. She answered the door, and the police officer told her that they'd found Joanne's car abandoned in the church parking lot. He asked her if she was missing. This is odd for a couple of reasons. Mm, It is odd. Firstly, Joanne had only been missing, in quotes, for a few hours. Certainly not long enough to raise concern for the police. And second, if you remember, this car was registered to Michelle. Yeah. Not to Joanne. So how did they even know? I guess her wallet and stuff was in the car. Okay. But still. Mm. Um, The police had said they'd found Joanne's car. Yeah, that's that's weird. It's like they've got prior knowledge that she was borrowing the car. So Michelle and Kelly the two daughters have maintained that the officer asked if joanne was missing because they'd found her car the officer in question says he asked about the car itself not a specific person but the whole situation is still weird after a couple of hours of a person being missing you hear you hear about all these stories where the people where the cops are like they haven't been missing long enough yeah i mean and why say (laughs) is she missing why not say we believe she's gone into the water yeah i i guess like to me, a more normal way would be to say, like, is she here? Is she home? Have you mm. heard from her? Mm. But maybe they did ask in that way. That's not what Michelle and Kelly say. They, they said they the maintain. exact words were, is she missing? We found Joanne's car. Is she missing? Mm. Anyway, Kelly started calling her phone immediately. It kept going to voicemail, which meant it was off. Joanne's children started calling family friends. They believed she'd gone to get coffee with someone or they hoped that she had, um, but no one was with her or had heard from her. Michelle called John, who was Joanne's brother, um, and told him to get to their house straight away uh, because the police officers had come to the house and had told them that Joanne was missing. They all decided to go to the church because that was the last place that she was. According to Michelle, she left with Kelly and John at 9.45pm and the officer stayed behind with other family members. Phone records show that all these calls took place before 10pm. So Kelly and Michelle's timeline is backed up by hard evidence. Mm -hmm. When the daughters and their uncle got to the church, they found a full-on crime scene had been established. Police were everywhere and they were baffled as to why a crime scene had been set up despite her only being missing for a few hours and seemingly no evidence of foul play. And in fact, no one had even reported her missing at this point. According to Michelle, the car was locked. They saw a law enforcement official pry the door open as Joanne's keys were nowhere to be found. Now, if you'll remember, earlier, the police officer reported how much money was in the car? Yes. That he found her ID? Yeah. All that information. But the car was locked. But the car was locked. Okay. That is super shady. Now, Joanne's cell phone was missing and her purse was on the front seat. Michelle says she never left her purse behind. So when she saw it in the car, she became really worried. Mm-hmm. When the official police reports from this case have been scrutinized, some inconsistencies begin to show up. The times for one. So remember the police reports have Colombo becoming concerned just before 10 p.m., so why do the phone records prove that the daughters were alerted by police around a half hour earlier? Yeah. Police insist that they arrived at the daughter's house around 10.20pm, but this doesn't match up with the hard evidence of the phone call logs. The f- phone records. Yeah, how can they insist that? They're wrong. They're wrong. <laughs> they maintain that, though. Oh, I, that drives me nuts when people do that, yeah. when like, they're like, well, that's a fact. No, it's not, actually. Yeah. This is the fact. You can't... Yeah. You're wrong. Just admit that you're wrong. You can see yeah. that the facts say that you're I wrong. Hate, I hate this thing now where there's like alternative realities and yes. it's like, no, there is an absolute truth here. Yeah. And you have to acknowledge that. Yeah. And look, it's like, the no, phone, well, that's not what I believe. If the phone record said the calls happened before 10 o'clock, yeah. then that means that that's what happened. And if yeah. you think that that's not what happened, then you're mistaken in some way. Yes. You can't just be like, Will we maintain that that's what happened? So further, Coast Guard records show that at 9.30pm the Coast Guard were notified and eight minutes later they deployed a full crew arriving at the lakefront at 9.51pm. Again, this is before the second officer said he had even run the plates. So he's wrong. He's lying or he's wrong. These time discrepancies were put down to incorrect reporting. Okay. Still kind of weird. Yeah. Let's keep going. Kelly and Michelle searched the church grounds. They searched through every spot a person could possibly get into, both inside and outside the building. When three hours had passed and no one had heard from Joanne, her family knew something was wrong. Coast Guard helicopters and divers searched the lake for her. Kelly asked the police why so many officers and the Coast Guard were there. They told her that they thought Joanne had walked into the water. Kelly didn't believe that. Michelle recalls it was freezing cold that night. The water was even partially frozen. The police told her that they believed Joanne had walked from her car to the water and died by suicide. Her family reported... Hang on, they, they had made this assumption already? Correct. Wow. Her family reportedly begged the police to use K nine units to track her scent, but the, the police told her family that dogs cannot detect scent in the cold. This was a lie. Why would they pull out seemingly all the stops, get a fucking helicopter but not want to bring out fucking Fido. Mm. Weird. Very weird. Very weird that they have, without even having found her body yet, just gone, I think that was, she killed herself. I think you need to accept it, the and, fact. And, like, Telling no that, history of, you no. know, not going through any, I mean, apart from, I guess, her husband. We're going to talk about her mental history as well. Yeah. But, like, it's such a huge leap. to a leap, just, yeah. Chief Jensen says there were no signs of struggle either around the car or in it. There were also no signs of struggle around the around um, the prints in the snow. They did not find any evidence to suggest that a crime had been committed, such as torn clothing, items on the ground, dumped out purse, ransacked car, scuff marks, or drag marks around the scene, blood, bullet casings, etc. But the daughters said that despite her purse being relatively new, she'd gotten it um, not that long ago. It was torn at one of the seams. An investigator, later hired by the family, said that this does suggest foul play. Remember that. At 4am, Coast Guard helicopters were caught off and the car was towed to the police station. Gross Point Farms Detective Lieutenant Richard Rossati checked the inside and outside of the car for fingerprints. He did not check the purse for prints. He said, There were no clear prints, only smudges. But apparently this fingerprint check was also done incorrectly. So, apparently, the fingerprint dust was thrown haphazardly around the car, including on the leather seats, which is not standard, as fingerprints are generally not easy to lift from leather. What is generally used on leather is fuming the car with super glue, and then you get really good lighting and a really good camera. So, basically, as soon as the dust was thrown on the the leather seats, the prints were destroyed. Leather seats is hard for me to say. Leather seats? Yeah. It gets stuck in my tongue so as the police believed there was no evidence of a crime having been committed they did not execute a thorough dna search on the car or the scene that point i can maybe put down to small time police department not being fully versed in like homicide investigations and stuff put it down to what's that quote that's like um anything that can be put down to stupid incompetence don't don't attribute it to malice or whatever yeah something like that sure But I think with everything else, that becomes more and more tenuous. Yeah. When you start adding all of these things together. All of these things, yeah. Yeah. After 48 hours, Grosse Pointe Farms Police turned the case over to Grosse Pointe Woods Police because Joanne resided there. From the get-go, police said they were dealing with what they believed to have been a suicide. This was based on the single row of footprints leading to the water and the apparent lack of evidence of any violent struggle. The police chief later said that when they saw the footprints, they just went into rescue mode, hence the response the daughters saw. Michelle said that when Joanne disappeared, it was, quote, the end of the world for a lot of people. They put flyers together and began a massive search. There was an extensive three-day-long search in the area where police believe Joanne had entered the water. Michelle says the water was about two feet deep, clear, and had virtually no current. On the night Joanne disappeared, she was wearing a black blouse, black pants, black high-heeled shoes, and a black coat. Michelle believes they would have been able to clearly see if she was in the water. The Midwest Technical Recovery Team, a specialty diving team, searched for three more days. They confirmed that Joanne was not in the water. William Robinette, the team's director, says the search was the most thorough one he and his team had ever done. They found a lot of cold water and ice, but there was no trace of her. I mean, there, there's also a bit of an assumption made here that the footprints were hers. Like There sure is, and we're going to come to those footprints. He does not think she was in that location. His team also confirmed that there was virtually no current in the lake. Yeah, so if she, if anyone had gone in the water, they would have pretty much stayed, stayed in that where they location. Were. Yeah. Yeah. Also, she's wearing black on something that is in parts white. The police also reportedly told the Coast Guard she'd been missing since 5pm and that there was a hole in the ice. Both statements were untrue. They're just like making shit up. Yeah. And this information is confirmed through police reports, which were later obtained through a FOIA request by Joanne's daughter. Now here, I'm just going to go back to what Joanne was wearing the night of her disappearance. She was wearing heels. You mentioned the footprints. The footprints leading to the water's um, edge were boots, according to witnesses. But once again, things get dodgy here. The original footprints were not preserved. They were trod on and ruined by attending personnel. Without them even taking any photographs. So there are photographs, but it's just of like a bunch of footprints. Right. And can they pinpoint <laughs> which ones were Of course meant? not. Officers did not take 90 degree photos of the footprints. They did not take any photos directly above the footprints of the scale next to it. If that had been done, then the photos could have been used to compare to known footprints. An expert hired by the daughters said that, said that any trained officer should not have omitted these kinds of photos. The officers also did not measure, mold, or cast the prints. So, another thing. And also, like, if she was wearing high heels and these were boots, I guess you could make the argument, oh, maybe she changed into boots. Sure. But then where are her high heels? Yeah. Like, that means They'd that- be in the car, surely. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Kelly says that her mother was scared of the dark and of the water. So, even if they could believe that she would take her own life, this manner still wouldn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Michelle points out that there was no suicide note. Joanne was never on any medications. She was a devout Catholic. She went to church on Sundays, but also went during the week. Michelle notes that suicide is against all beliefs in Catholicism. According to two of Joanne's doctors and her family members, she had no history of mental illness or suicidal tendencies. The police theory is that Joanne left the church in 12-degree weather in the dark of night, crossed the initial two-lane traffic, went to the median, crossed the other two-lane traffic, and then walked through a snowy area to the embankment. Then, while wearing high-heeled boots, she walked down the steep, icy, snow-covered embankment. After that, she slid over two brake walls, dropped five feet, and then went into a foot of freezing cold water to take her own life, walking out over two football fields with absolutely no witnesses seeing her and no history of mental illness. Yeah, that also seems like a strange way to kill yourself. Absolutely. Like what, was she freezing herself to death? (laughs) Like is that the, like to walk out, I mean you said it's four feet. It's only four feet after two football fields. Now Joanne is very short so she could have done it in like I guess in six-foot water but then still the body's response to it's so difficult to drown oneself if you're just like able to stand up. Yeah, and – Then the other option is she's choosing suicide by freezing herself to death. Yeah. And in which case you'd find her. It's a very strange. So Joanne's family hired Salvatore Rastrelli, an expert crime scene analyst to investigate separately from the police. Rastrelli conducted an experiment to see how difficult it would have been for Joanne to traverse the embankment in high-heeled shoes. He had a female volunteer put on high-heeled shoes and walk down the embankment. It was difficult for her to walk down it in even normal conditions. He thinks it would have been impossible for Joanne to have walked, walked down it with snow and ice on the ground. According to Rastrelli, the police chief said he knew Joanne's case was a suicide, quote, in five minutes. How? It's not an obvious suicide. Rastrelli says there is no way for someone to make that determination on a case that quickly. He says the investigation was conducted, quote, so outside of typical procedure, end quote, that he found it suspicious. Another good point about this quick jump to suicide was that the police had been, if the police had been even open to the possibility that there was foul play involved, this likely would have generated more media attention. And with media attention comes media coverage and then comes tips and witnesses, yeah. something which the police would not want if they were, if they were engaging in a cover-up. Mm. Yeah. Michelle also hired – Michelle's a daughter, remember? Yeah. Also hired retired FBI agent Bill Randall to help investigate the case. He decided that the first thing they needed to do was get a copy of Joanne's cell phone records. Something that the this police is the, hadn't done. the police hadn't done that. Nope. They, so they were one hundred percent just like, oh well, shut it down. It she killed herself. Yep. One number on the records belonged to a security company. In the week prior to her disappearance, she had left a voicemail for the company. She was trying to contact an investigator. She apparently believed she was being followed by a person or persons unknown. Oh. And she was concerned. She believed her phone was been tapped, that people had been in her house, and that her mail had been intercepted. And actually, someone, had el- someone else had been able to get into her post office box due to a mistake at the post office. Joanne's co-workers said in the lead up to the disappearance, she was receiving more calls than usual. Michelle said that because of all this, Joanne didn't like going many places alone at night. Um, the only place she truly felt safe was the church. Remember how Joanne was said to have left the church at 7.20 and then her car was seen there later on? Yeah. Well, a witness who left the service at about 7.25pm only recalled seeing a black van parked in the driveway. She did not see Joanne's car. Another witness left the church between 7.25 and 7.35 and she was the last one to leave. She did not see Joanne's car she felt uneasy this witness felt uneasy because it was so dark as she proceeded towards her car she looked to the left and to the right of the driveway she noticed no vehicles parked there this would mean that at some point joanne's car left the church and then was returned back to the church yeah on saturday march 20th 2010 70 days after joanne's disappearance her body was found by two fishermen on boblo island which is located in the detroit rivers livingston channel in amherstburg ontario it was 35 miles from where she allegedly entered the water Joanne's body would have had to have travelled from the shallow water near the church down a shipping channel in the middle of the lake into the Detroit River and go 30 miles downstream. Scott Lewis, an investigative reporter and private investigator, now got involved. He said the first red flag for him was that she filled up her petrol, yeah, something someone who's planning on taking their lives wouldn't usually do. Mm. But I do, I do have a bit of an issue with that one because it was her daughter's car. So it could have, if she was suicidal, I don't think she was, I think this is bullshit. But Mm -hmm. if she was suicidal, maybe she thought this is the last nice thing I'll do for my daughter. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that was, you know, it's a good point. If she was suicidal, it's maybe not the first thing you'd think of doing. None of the investigators Michelle Hyde thought Joanne could have traveled in the water from the church to the island. Michelle theorizes that her body was dumped somewhere down the river, possibly in Detroit. Two days after Joanne's body was found, her identity was confirmed through dental records. The body was in an advanced state of decomposition. So as a result, forensic pathologists were unable to make a definitive determination as to the time of her death. Dr. Jeffrey Jensen, professor of forensic pathology at the University of Michigan, says her body may have been there for some time in the water uh, because grey-brown algae and zebra mussels were stuck to her legs and lower extremities. The Canadian coroner who performed Joanne's autopsy noted in his report that neither United States nor Canadian police suspected foul play. The report noted, quote, paranoid psychosis, in quotes, presumed. How? Why? Based on what? It's This is weird to me now because I'm like, when you were telling me just about the small town, like the cops in that town, I'm like, okay, maybe they were all in on it. But mm. this is now take bringing in like, the Canadian coroner and like all these extra people mm, like, but I mean, if co- cover-ups happen, they've got to go all the way to the top. Don't they? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, paranoid schizophrenic. Cause she's never been diagnosed with anything. No. How can they just be like, I, she, she, she had, she was schizophrenia. crazy man. Yeah. She had schizophrenia, I guess. Um, nevertheless, he wrote that he found insufficient evidence that Joanne intended to take her life. So I reckon this coroner's like, I know what you want me to say. I can't say that, but I'll find it inconclusive. A separate autopsy was performed by the Macomb County Medical Examiner's Office. They reached the same conclusion as the Canadian coroner, but based on the lack of significant injuries, they felt that homicide was unlikely, still ruling the manner as undetermined though. Dr. Jensen was brought in to perform another autopsy. In his opinion... Joanne's cause of death was drowning. However, he says it's certainly possible that she could have been dead prior to entering the water. Now, two forensic experts say she died of dry drowning. And this means there was no water in her lungs when the body was found and that her breathing was compromised before she entered the water. But the manner of death was ultimately undetermined because the body was too decomposed. There were two bruises on the upper left portion of her arm, He says that the bruising could have been the result of an assault or it could represent just two coincidental bruises to the arm. In his opinion, they occurred before her death. These bruises are where Michelle says her mother always carried her purse, the one that had been ripped. She wondered if someone had grabbed the purse, bruising Joanne and ripping the purse at the same time. So let's talk about the dry drowning aspect. If there was no water in her lungs, surely she would have been buoyant and therefore more likely to be seen. Especially because there was very little current, the water was frozen over in areas, and again, the lake was very shallow. Yeah, it's very m- weird. It's yeah, it's unlikely that she would have uh, somehow dry drowned on land, and then been, and then got somehow got into the water. Yeah, like they, it they, just doesn't. Nothing adds up. No, because they ha- they have said that the cause of death was suicide by drowning, mm. but there's no water in her lungs. Yep. Um, When Joanne's body was found, her car keys were found zipped up in her coat pocket. Okay. Yep. Michelle is bothered by the fact that everything on Joanne was zipped up. All her pockets were zipped up and her jacket was zipped up to her chin. This does not make sense because she never zipped her jacket up that far, according to Michelle. Two of her belongings were also missing her rosary and her cell phone. According to Michelle, Joanne normally had both of these things in her coat pocket. Michelle notes that the first thing a criminal would get rid of would be a cell phone since they can be tracked. Another thing Michelle noticed was that Joanne's shoes were intact. So she wasn't wearing boots. She wasn't wearing boots. She was wearing our high heels and they were intact. Um, so those footprints could not have been hers. She says that, well, no, not, Yeah. She says that other than some clay from the river, they were in, quote, impeccable condition. The police maintained she walked down an embankment over some broken concrete and exposed rebar into some rocks and 100 yards out out into the lake to drown herself. The entire bottom of the lake is rocky, yet her shoes had no scuff marks. Her clothes were intact and her jewellery was still on. It did not seem like she travelled too far and went through too much. Michelle believes Joanne was abducted while she was walking out of the church. She believes Joanne was grabbed from the left side by her purse, where the bruises on her arm were. She believes Joanne was then pushed into her own car, where the abductor then took her, um, took the wheel and drove away with Joe. She believes they took Joanne somewhere along the Detroit River, rendered her unconscious, possibly with chloroform, or killed her then and there, put her body in the water, drove her car back to the church, parked it in a spot where it would get little attention, and created the scene in the snow with the trampled footprints and the butt marks. Growth Point Woods Police Lieutenant Keith Wasak did not believe that the car leaving and returning to the church was suspicious. What? (laughs) How can you not find that suspicious in a case like this? Uh, Because you want to close the case. Yeah. Remember that Joanne's car was initially locked and her keys were nowhere? Yeah. Well, apparently, the day after her car was towed to the police station, an officer was told to go and retrieve the spare key from the family, which he did and brought back to the police station. But there is uncertainty as to how police obtained it. Michelle claims that about a month before Joanne's disappearance, Joanne told her that the spare keys for the car and house were missing. This is, where she, this is where Joanne thought someone had entered the house. Right. A police officer says he picked up the spare key from Joanne's house the day after she disappeared. However, he does not remember who gave it to him and the daughters deny that this ever happened. So they just had it. Yeah, according to Michelle and Kelly. Can you not know who gave it to you? You think that's a chain of custody thing? Like you, you case note these sorts yeah. of things. Like, yeah, and this is and not what well, This is two thousand and ten. Yeah. So, is such and such answered the door? Such and such was home. Such and such handed me the keys. Yes, I. I remember it's really basic. I remember always the Claremont serial killer case and the notes that were taken, and that was in what the nineties. Yeah, and the the notes were so specific mm. who's entering the crime scene what they're bringing in this person left the crime scene at mm-hmm. this time it's so specific because there's so much things with like evidence that you've got to it's also weird that even if it's not case noted that you're like i can't remember who gave them yeah. to me. And like the, i'm assuming that it's not like years decades down the line i'm assuming no. it's like i mean it can't be decades it's only been th- th- 13 years since this case it's been a decade and he had to go to the house specifically to get the keys. Get the keys. So um, on the, anyway, the next one.
1: On yeah, the night- yeah. So, so
0: the daughters were like, um, no, That never he happened. Didn't. <laughs> yeah. On the night of the disappearance, a witness said that they saw a man jogging in the vicinity wearing a black scarf, but no jumper. Weird for January in Michigan. But, okay. Even weirder, a black scarf was found in the median of Lakeshore Drive, which is where the church is. Michelle confirmed it was not Joanne's. It was placed in an evidence locker, but was donated to Goodwill just months later. What? Oh, this is so dodgy. I love this next part. Um, so you know how I mused that I thought it was weird that the cops even cared that the car was left where it was, and you suggested that, you know, maybe they're a little bit more on guard for yeah. that kind of thing? So, to prove that Joanne's car should not have been considered suspicious by police, Michelle's investigators left a car parked overnight in the exact spot where Joanne's car was found. A purse and other items were left in the car, similar to Joanne's. The car was left there on three separate occasions. It was never reported by police. It did not even receive a parking ticket. I love that. I love these daughters. Like they're fucking on it. They're so onto it. Yeah, and they're we're just like, not quitting too. Yeah, no, we're not gonna. We're not gonna go away with this. Mm-hmm. Um, Michelle told police there were several potential suspects, so Michelle knows some people that could have committed this. Poor Michelle is just like, I guess I'll do the yeah, police I guess, investigation. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's some suspects. Do you want me to question them for you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the most. I'll go get a warrant. Yeah. Um- yeah. I mean, she may as well become a like an in private yeah. investigator at this point. Yeah. Um. But the most obvious was her father and Joanne's ex, David. So did Michelle point the Michelle finger at her dad? Pointed the finger at her dad. Wow, that's that's something as well. Like that's weird in itself because yeah. generally, like, you if know, our if, parents' if mum went missing, yeah. I wouldn't be like, it was dad. Might have been dad. <laughs> 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 um. So obviously david and joanne were going through quite a messy divorce and she had feared trouble from her husband according to the law firm representing her in the proceedings michelle initially thought he might be capable of having someone else harm joanne she was not sure if it was actually involved but she felt the need to put him on the suspect list um however the investigators hired by the family following their mother's death did not believe david was involved i still think he's a suspect though and i will go on to how he could have been involved second possible suspect was john joanne's brother oh yeah but hang on john and joe were incredibly close joanne was probably the closest person to john and michelle doesn't think he was directly involved but rather someone who wanted to get to john took joanne out um to send a message Oh, uh, was John in into some dodgy stuff? Yeah. So John admits that during the time period, he owed a lot of money to certain people. He says it's possible that someone he had dealings with could have murdered Joanne. He says no matter what, he is sorry that this happened and he wishes they would have killed him instead if that were the case. But the person Michelle believes is the most likely suspect was Joanne's first cousin, Tim Matook. He was a Harper Woods police officer at the time. Oh, yeah. Yep. He is now an investigator with the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. Yeah, there you go. Michelle says that he and Joanne were estranged. The two had reportedly not spoken in several years. Michelle says that, that they used to have a big, loving family, but as soon as Joanne's mother passed away in 1994, it started falling apart. Joanne's parents owned a successful store in Gross Point Woods. When the parents died, they left a large sum of money for their children to split. There was a lawsuit between the siblings over this inheritance. The money was supposed to be split five equal ways, but it was never distributed properly. There was also controversy because Joanne continually helped John out. Ever since that time, there has been, quote, animosity and separation, end quote, within the family. Tim says he last spoke to Joanne in October 2009. However, according to Michelle, a few weeks before Joanne disappeared, he called Joanne and the two got into an argument. Michelle doesn't know what he said to her exactly, but she remembers Joanne screaming at him saying, quote, how did you get my number? Never call me again, end quote. She could hear him yelling on the other end of the phone, like through the, like, yes, yeah, but she couldn't hear what he was saying. She could just hear like yelling. his yelling voice. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, she heard Joanne say, quote, I never said you were the root of everyone's problems. You just need to keep your nose out of everyone's business. Leave me and my family alone. Never call me again. After Joanne hung up on Tim, Michelle noticed Joanne's face had turned white. She told Michelle she might be in danger and said, to, uh, quote, if something happens to me, look to Tim. Oh, my God. She reportedly Come on. How can they, <laughs> how can they not, like, find anything suspicious in this story? Because he's a fucking police officer. Um, Joanne reportedly feared Tim because he was a police officer and she thought he was attempting to obtain information on John. Oh, so, like, he um, maybe wanted to bring John down. Like, maybe. On some charges. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Someone named Barrick. I think it was, like, Kelly Barrick or something like that. But I've just got the surname, um, unfortunately. So, Mr. or Mrs. or Miss Barrick, Joanne's divorce divorce lawyer, said Joanne told her, quote, Tim said to me, if someone wanted to get rid of you, they could do it and you would never be found. And she, that's the divorce lawyer saying that. I trust the word of a lawyer. Yeah. I don't think that would make something up. What a thing to say yeah. and then to have someone go missing. Yeah. Um, one of Joanne's friends, who was a former FBI agent, also told police to look into Tim as a person of interest. Um, get this. Michelle learned that a tip sent to police stating that Joanne was paranoid, depressed, and suicidal came from Tim himself. Oh, my God. Michelle. Is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Such an obvious cover up. Yeah, Michelle is also suspicious of a closed door meeting between Tim, David, her ex, and Bill, another brother of Joanne's, at the family store a few days after jo- Joanne's disappearance. So why is the fucking cousin meeting with the ex and a brother? I reckon they were probably talking about money. Yeah, probably like okay. Well, now okay, she's gone. If she's gone, where's the money? Where's her money going to go? Yeah, who, yeah, who's it going to go to? Mm. So let me step back a moment and run through the family as we know it. We have Joanne, who's dead. Her brothers are Bill and John. She's close with John. She's not close with Bill. Her cousin is Tim and her ex is David. Joanne was really close with John and there was a lot of animosity between her, David, Tim and Bill. Yeah. Let's talk about Bill for a moment. This is the other brother. The other brother. He was close with most of the official investigators on the case because he would sell them booze for cheap. He also was involved in some criminal activity. Apparently, Joanne went to the family store a few weeks before her death in an attempt to smooth things over with Bill and hopefully stop the family fighting. Michelle dropped her off there and waited outside for her. And when she came back outside, she seemed, quote, freaked out and scared. She would not tell Michelle what happened inside. In June 2014, Michelle and her family filed a $100 million civil lawsuit against the city of Gross Point Farms and additional defendants for, con- for the conspiracy to cover up Joanne's murder. They alleged that the Gross Point Farms and Gross Point Woods Police Departments and several officers were protecting, quote, one of their own, presumably Tim, uh, from being prosecuted for the murder. They claimed the police ignored and or changed witness statements, falsified their reports and focused their investigation only on suicide. Yeah. Listen to this part. A witness, Paul Hawke, claims the police did not take his sighting of Joanne that night with two men seriously. Police say he was unreliable and his statements differed. His statements did differ and he was able to remember some details later that he hadn't initially claimed, but let's listen to what he says. Yeah. So he claims he was driving near the church when he saw a woman matching matching Joanne's description sitting on the lake's brake wall. He noticed two cars parked illegally on the lake side of the road with two men standing near them. He was worried the woman was in danger because she appeared to be slightly slumped over. As Paul slowed down and approached the, the cars and the men, he noticed one of the vehicles appeared to be a municipal one. Like a guppy vehicle? Like a guppy vehicle or, a, you know, an off-duty police car. Um, it was dark blue or black, four-door sedan. It's the fire cracking. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> it was dark blue or black, a four-door sedan, possibly a Ford Crown Victoria model, and its license plates. First three letters were BHP. The other vehicle was a silver Lexus SUV. One of the men acted as if he had a gun in his coat pocket and he motioned for Paul to keep moving. What, so he was like? Yeah, like, you know, pretending, yeah, keep going. Oh, that's Um, scary. I would freak out. When Paul asked what was going on, the man said, quote, get the hell out of here. Oh, so he actually wound the window down and was like. What's going on? yeah. Yeah. Good on him. Yep. That's brave. If I thought that someone had a gun, I think I'd probably just floor it. Mm. This is also a lot of like random kind of details for someone to be making something up, mm. like the types of cars, the colors, the position of the people. The it's stuff that you could check as well. Mm. Like it's mm. if he's got part of a number plate, that's stuff. Run that it. You could check. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, a few days later, Paul heard about Joanne's disappearance on the news, and so he thought, "Oh, okay. Well, that's." You know, that's what I saw. Yeah. So he went to Gross Point Farms Police Department to report his sighting. After talking with officers for about 40 minutes, they told him to go home, write down his statement and bring it back the next day. He says he did did just that. Um, I don't know why they didn't write his statement Yeah, why they didn't just take his statement. According to the lawsuit, two years passed before they followed up on his sighting. I wonder if they were hoping that he just wouldn't come back. Like, of course. If were, yeah, if they were like, oh, just look, just bring it back to us when you've done yeah. it, you know, in a week, in two weeks. And they were just hoping that he would forget. In 2012, he filed a property damage complaint and claims that the damage was caused by someone sending a message to, quote, remain quiet regarding his siding. Paul claims he went to the Michigan State Police and FBI because no one ever called him back. Mm-hmm. So he's now like no, I saw this thing. You're not taking me seriously. I'm going to go over your heads. So this poor random guy yeah, is like, he's like, I saw something fucked up. What, what the hell is happening? Yeah. He's not even a part of their family and no, he's like, this is dodgy. This is dodgy. So shortly after speaking with the FBI, he was contacted by Gross Point Woods detective Anthony Chalut. Detective Chalut asked him about speaking with the FBI and reportedly became aggressive when Paul said he could positively identify the men he had seen that night. Detective Chalot allegedly threatened to have him charged with obstructing an investigation. He's not obstructing it. He's trying to... He's helping. (laughs) In 2014, after he was shown a a photograph of Tim, he identified Tim as one of the men he had seen that night. In 2018, the lawsuit and subsequent appeal were dismissed by the courts, despite the judge on the case claiming that they were... Um, That there were many disturbing disputed facts and that the family's case was meritous, which, if we're speaking legally, means the applicant has a reasonable chance of success um, at trial. So pretty odd that it was thrown out. Yeah, why was it dismissed then? No idea. They didn't give any reason? I'm sure there, there would have to be reason. It would have to... well. They'd just have to say, like, lawsuit dismissed and then it would say on the grounds of insufficient evidence or something like that. But then he has gone back and been like, but you do have sufficient evidence. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) In 2020, Tim was interviewed by the Unsolved Mysteries crew where he said there is no motive and no evidence against him. But there is. There is plenty. There is an abundance. This is, again, like somebody just (laughs) being like, there's nothing. Yeah. But there is. That's a fact. It's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so Tim claims he was at work that night. Remember, he's a cop. Mm. Um, he said he was working from 2 till 10 in Warren, which is another suburb of Michigan. None of Tim's colleagues actually saw him though, and he was engaging over the radio, so he could have been anywhere. Mm-hmm. I'll also note that Warren is only about a 20-minute drive from Gross Point Farms. Okay. Uh, Tim, David, and Bill have never been considered suspects by the police. Paul Hawke, the witness that refused to back down, was found dead in his home in 2021 at the age of 55. Paul died unexpectedly and his family suspect foul play. D- Did they say it was a suicide? <laughs> yeah, probably. No, they didn't, but... He's found beaten to death, yeah, it's yeah. probably a suicide. Yeah. Yeah. Despite this case technically still being open, Gross Point police refused to talk about it and it has since been declared inactive. This is so wrong. If you feel compelled, there is a change.org petition started by Joanne's daughter, Michelle. The petition calls for, quote, the FBI, the Attorney General of Michigan, the Governor of Michigan and the US Department of Justice to stand up, take charge, do a proper and thorough investigation and bring this case to justice once and for all. A reward has been offered for information on this case, and that is the possible suicide, probable murder of Joanne Matouk-Romaine. Have you signed the petition? I haven't yet. I'm going to. How crazy. I know. I I'm so angry for that family. Yeah. And the witness too. The witness yeah. is he's just like a normal dude and he's just like I'm sorry, I saw something crazy. Yeah. Saw something crazy. It fit in with this this thing that's happened and he's gone this is wrong. I'm going to fight for this. Yeah. And ends up dead, maybe by natural causes, probably again by foul play. Crazy, hey? Yeah. That is nuts. I know. Yeah, I'm definitely going to sign that petition. Yeah, it's on Change.org. Everyone jump on board. Yeah. I mean, if you agree. If you feel you, compelled, yeah. Yeah, you, know, <laughs> you have to. You have right. to. If you believe it's a suicide, tell us why. Yeah, exactly. What's your evidence? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody give us a reason. <laughs> uh, good one, know, hey? Yeah, that that was a really good one. Yeah. What's her name again? Joanne. Jo- well, her, her she was born Joanne Matuk. So but when she died, her name was... Goametic Remain. Yeah. yeah. God damn. Let us know what you think, people. And thanks for listening. This has been a long one. What What are we at? An hour. Oh, well, that's all right. I'll edit it down. It won't be that long. Yeah. Although the, it's not that much to edit. I feel like we didn't shit talk too much We this didn't time. shit talk too much, no. Mm-hmm. Okay. It'll just have to be to and from work for some people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or you'll have to listen to this to and from the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what's your one next week? The family. Okay. The cult, the family. Yeah, cool. Not to be confused with the Family International. Okay. Or there's another family thing. Yeah. But um, it's the Australian cult, the family, the the um, kids who've got the creepy haircuts. Cool. I don't know anything out. about them, so I'm looking forward to it. Ooh, it's going to be a good one. Good. To make up for my terrible Stairs in the Woods episode. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Bye.